0: Welcome to our podcast, Conversations About Student Mental Health. I'm Chris Leonard, clinical social worker, working with adolescents for over 25 years. In this podcast, I talk with school administrators, educators, clinicians, and parents to open a dialogue that will help the growing number of students struggling with mental illness. During the past year, three issues have dominated the news cycle, COVID-19, the 2020 election, and the Black Lives Matter movement. As we record today's episode, two weeks prior to inauguration day, both COVID and our political divide remain problematic as evidenced by the continued spread of the virus and the recent assault on our nation's Capitol building. However, we have made real progress with a COVID vaccine and Congress has now certified the results of the 2020 election. In contrast, when it comes to issues around race, equality, and bias, it is much harder to see progress. Dealing with race, equality, and bias continue to confound Americans in large part because we are not even comfortable talking about these issues. Most of us readily agree that racism is a problem, but we are much less ready to look at how we ourselves participate in perpetuating the problem. Jeff James, author of Giving Up Whiteness, has pointed out that most of us think that we are anti-racist, but we are really assimilationist at best. We point to segregationists, people who overtly claim that whites are superior as the problem. This, unfortunately, is just one more form of othering people. We point and say, Look over there, the neo-Nazis or the skinheads or the Proud Boys are the problem. We reassure ourselves, I'm not racist. Unfortunately, this pattern of othering and self-soothing does nothing to address the real problems of racism and bias. This issue is even more deeply compounded for us in our roles as educators and therapists. Our children and teens are watching events unfold in the world and they bear witness to such dramatic differences as how heavily guarded the Capitol building was during last year's Black Lives Matter protests versus how sparsely and casually it was guarded during this week's congressional counting of electoral votes. And this despite broadly communicated threats of violence by white protesters. Our students have questions, real questions, and we need to support thoughtful dialogue So, how do we talk to our students and to each other in ways that are more constructive and productive? Here to help me begin this conversation today is LaCoya Weddington, who serves as Assistant Superintendent for Compliance, Equity, and Student Services at the Cherry Hill, New Jersey Public School District. Her prior role was Director of Pupil Services, a position she held since 2012. LaCoya's background in education spans 27 years with a focus on improving educational opportunities for students in New Jersey. Prior to joining the Cherry Hill Public School District, Ms. Wellington was employed by the New Jersey Juvenile Justice Commission, where she served as the Director of Education. In this role, she led the education program for students in the juvenile justice system. Ms. Wethington spent 10 years working for the New Jersey Department of Education, where she served as a specialist and then a coordinator responsible for the development and administration of programs, including social services in schools, school health services, innovative programs, dropout prevention, and alternative education. Prior to joining state government, she served as a school social worker for the Perth Amboy Board of Education. Ms. Wethington is a graduate of Rutgers University, where she obtained a bachelor's degree and a master's degree in social work with a concentration in administration, policy, and planning. LaCoya, that is quite a resume. I am so happy that you are here with us today. Thank you.
1: Thank you for having me, Chris. I appreciate it.
0: It's great to have you. Um, So let's jump in. The first question some listeners might be asking themselves is, what, what are we talking, you know, why are we talking about this on a, on a podcast about student mental health? What does race equality and bias have to do with mental health?
1: So, Chris, I would start with the word trauma. Hmm. 2020 was a tough year for all of us. Um, I think for children and students, we talk a lot in social work and psychology about ACEs, adverse childhood experiences. I think everyone would have a higher ACEs score after 2020. Um, students and staff are entering our schools, whether they're coming in person or they're coming through remote learning, with the remnants of trauma. It was a traumatic mm-hmm. year for all of us. There's also, yes. um, for me, it's just the emotional exhaustion of this year. Oh, boy, yes. And I, and I would say for for people of color, the trauma is even more heightened. Mm-hmm. So we started the year with COVID and none of us knew how to handle that, right? A, a pandemic with nothing like we've seen for a hundred years. And people of color were disproportionately impacted by that, which just adds on to the trauma. So you have students managing death of loved ones. Some have turned into caretakers because their parents may be ill. We've lost in-person connections. And then we add the isolation that all of us have been feeling. So that would have been enough. And then we add on George Floyd. Mm. And I will tell you that it's taken me seven months to be able to say his name out loud without crying. Mm-hmm. So I'm an adult woman. I you know, have a career, I have a family, I have fully developed coping skills. I have not been able to say George Floyd without crying for months because it was then and is still now a very painful experience. And I think all the time, if I'm feeling this way and my coping skills are developed, how are students feeling? Because as we know, working with students every day, some of the issues that we see is because they don't have great coping skills. Right. So where do you put that, the trauma, when you don't have good coping skills? Where where does that go? And I would argue that we're not just talking about students of color. Of course, for students of color, it's a different experience. Like, I am Black, my husband's Black, my children are Black, my father was Black. When I see George Floyd, I see someone that could be related to me. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that if you're not a person of color, if you're not Black, that there's no impact. And I wonder, how do we measure the impact of that trauma on students' psyche? Mm. You know, what... Yeah. How do we measure what happens when we don't see the humanity in another human being?
0: That comes at, that comes at a great price, and that's a, it's a great question. How do we measure it, right? Because it, I don't know, you know, how we measure it, but I know that it's something that it's there. You know, yeah. it's 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 you know when you carry when you carry hate or even disregard in your heart for people. Um, it, it impacts you.
1: Absolutely. You know,
0: there's an old saying in Buddhism, you know, uh, hating somebody is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die, right?
1: Yes, yes. So,
0: you know, it does impact us. And people get so used to living with something sometimes, with a particular mindset, a particular feeling, that they don't even realize the impact that it has on them after a while.
1: I absolutely agree, for sure.
0: So I... I guess this brings me to my next question. You know, we all walk around. uh, I I shouldn't say we all walk around. A lot of white people, we walk around and we think, well, I'm doing okay. I'm I'm a good person. I'm, you know, but clearly there is not enough that we are doing. So what are we doing wrong, first of all, that we think we're doing right?
1: Well, I think you said it. I think I'm a good person. Mm -hmm. People assume... I go to work, I pay my taxes, I pay my rent or my mortgage. If, if you practice religion, I practice my religion, I volunteer, I donate and like every box is checked, right? I'm a good person, I'm good. But assuming that you're good is a privilege and the assumption that goodness or niceness disproves racism, so nice people can't be racist is very dangerous. You never end up taking responsibility for any of your actions, whether they are deliberate or not. Mm. So if you're nice, then you can't be bad. You can't make bad choices. And nice people do things that are difficult all the time.
0: Yeah, true. I mean, I
1: think, go ahead, I'm sorry. Um, I was gonna say, so what happens is the person of color ends up being nice rather than truthful. Because Mm. when you're nice, I have to respond with niceness. If I don't respond with niceness, then I'm the bad guy, right? Right. And I can't be honest about that because we're stuck in niceness. If we can get out of niceness and, and get to truth, then we can make progress.
0: That makes sense. That makes sense. I think I think one of the one of the nice lies that people tell themselves is they say I'm colorblind.
1: Uh, I don't, colorblindness. I don't, see, I
0: don't see color. I, you know, and and I hear that I've heard that. My entire life.
1: <laughs> yes, so, so have I. So um, I was reading a book by Emmanuel Acho and it's called On Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man. And in that book, he talks about denial and he defines it as don't even know I am lying. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't even know I'm lying because it's so ingrained in what I believe, right? So colorblindness is not accurate unless you are truly blind and you can't see, if you see me, my skin is brown. If you see my face, you see my brown skin. There's no way that you don't see that when you see me. So it's not even factual. And I think when people say it, they believe it's a good thing and it's not. Because if you don't see me, then I'm invisible. And if I'm invisible, then I'm not human. And we can speak articulately to the examples of what happens when people are dehumanized. So the colorblindness is, it's a fallacy. It's just not accurate. And I'm gonna give you a concrete example. In 2008, Sarah Palin ran for office with, um, ran for vice president. Do you remember what people said about her when she ran? She was the first what? First woman. First woman. Did people say she was the first white woman?
0: exactly <laughs> no now,
1: kamala harris ran for <laughs> vice president right and and what was the soundbite she was the first woman black of color woman, woman of black color woman. right yeah so she's asian indian right and and black so white is always understood there's no color mm-hmm. blindness
0: mm-hmm. yeah it, that's, it such, a, that's such a that's such a great point because that's such a uh, um I, I saw somewhere, you know, somebody said it's it's kind of like uh, maybe it was Jeff James. I don't remember who it was. Somebody said it's like oxygen, like for, for yeah,
1: yeah, Jeff white James. People. Yes, that was Jeff James. Yes,
0: and and it's just part of the air you breathe. You don't even think about it. You don't even have to think about it. Whereas, right, right, when when you're black, you have to think about it every time you walk out the door.
1: Right, like Jeff James said, oxygen is like. Um, So he said, whiteness is like oxygen. So when you have a baby and the baby's born, they start to breathe, oxygen is just understood. You don't explain it to them, no one talks about it, it's just there, it's understood, you're breathing it all the time. So he he compared that to whiteness, like it's just there. You don't see it, you don't talk about it, you're breathing it. I would add to whiteness privilege and, and the feeling of comfort, of being comfortable. I would also say to you that that whiteness, that feeling of privilege and comfort, creates a disconnection to the experience of people that don't look like you. Mm -hmm. I'm black. Mm -hmm. My life is not always privileged or comfortable. I cannot afford to assume that I'm welcome in any space that I go into. And let me give you an example. Most parents, if you have children, you've coordinated a sleepover for your children, right? And as your children are younger, you and the parents are coordinating. As your children get older, the kids are coordinating. You're just a driver. So one of my children wanted to have a sleepover with with a friend that I was not familiar with. So my first question is, do they know you're Black? Because I can't assume that my child will be welcome in their home. Mm -hmm. That's something you don't have to think about if you're living in privilege and comfort.
0: Oh my gosh. So far from it. You're thinking about what snack should you bring? Do you, do you need your sleeping bag? Correct. Um, should you bring Correct. your stuffed animal or not? You know, it's not. Correct. Um, my goodness. Yes.
1: Yeah. It's just a different experience. And there's no way for you to connect that when you are breathing privilege and comfort.
0: Excellent point. So, let's, let's turn to school. How do these kinds of assumptions become manifest in school? This, this comfort that we're talking about, this, this assumption?
1: I think it's manifested everywhere. Um, look at texts that students are reading. I'll give you another example um, from my personal life. One of my children in middle school was reading Tom Sawyer. And the way that the teacher decided to roll out the lesson Uh, was for the students to read the book aloud and skip over the n-word. So to say I was a little concerned, just putting it mildly, when my child comes home to say we're reading this at school and we're skipping over the n-word. And I'm going to say to you that um, I am not a spring chicken anymore, but in Uh, The days when I was in elementary and middle school, I remember a similar exercise. And the feeling is like a light bulb coming down on your head. Like you feel like everyone's looking at you, your skin's tingling, your heart's racing. There's a visceral reaction. So I knew immediately what my child was talking about. So I contacted the school district. Now, I work in a school district, so I know who to call. I have a little bit more advantage, right? This is my life every day. Uh, I called the curriculum office, I asked about the book and the use of the book and the appropriateness, I asked about the lesson, and the response was, uh, thank you for sharing, we hadn't thought about that. So, how comfortable is it not to have to think about your child sitting in a classroom where the N word is used liberally in a book, and you're skipping over it? As if skipping over it magically makes it disappear. Right. And so right. the decision makers, right, whose oxygen they're breathing in, comfort and privilege, are not thinking about the way it impacts any children who don't look like them. So that's how it's showing up in schools all the time. Yeah, It's showing up in you know the labels that we use in buildings and our curricular materials what kind of authors are we um looking at what kind of works what kind of texts do we have representation of different types of people
0: there's so much that goes on in school that is just we do it this way because it's the way we've always done it
1: absolutely right right you know, that's our default a... <laughs>
0: We've, we've always read Tom Sawyer. We've always read right. James. It's an we have anchor text. We've
1: yeah. always used it. Yeah. So, Which doesn't mean that we should continue to use it. Like we need to be comfortable being thoughtful and pushing back and questioning and asking ourselves, why are we doing this? hmm what is the goal? What do we want children to learn and understand? How does that connect with this? Does it respect and make it safe for all students to learn? Because I'm going to tell you that was not a safe place for my child. No, And I'm no. not sure anyone and, realized it wasn't safe until I said something.
0: You know, and that's, and that's just in the day to day, right? So that, that just goes right. to show how deeply woven racist thinking is in, in our day-to-day life. Right. Then when you get to things like discipline, Uh, you know, there it becomes really, I mean, to me, you know, one of the most vivid things, you know, I mentioned it in my intro, I came across a picture on Twitter the other day of how heavily guarded the Capitol steps were. I mean, these, you know, I couldn't even tell what they were because they were all masked and these kind of black uniforms, riot gear, This was all for the BLM protests that weren't even happening right there. They were blocks away.
1: Blocks away.
0: And there was no, nobody was down there saying, let's go to the Capitol building, right? Whereas this this event had been broadcast for months and the people had been down the street whipped up and they were told, go there now and and go to war, right? Bring the battle to them. And it was just like, we were going to have school kids there that these day that day it was like right. you know nobody was prepared it was a sparse so discipline in school it seems to me that you know maybe my metaphor is overstated but it seems to me that that it's not too overstated because the kind of forces that come down upon black children as opposed to white children and where children even get placed in school versus where people, children get placed in a special education school or in the juvenile justice uh, system. You know, all of these things play out day, on a day-to-day basis.
1: Yes, I, listen, I agree with you. The The visual of um, the police presence in Black Lives Matter, a peaceful protest versus the insurrection at the Capitol, uh, was the first thing I noticed. It was the first thing my husband noticed, the first thing my daughter noticed. Um, That was very apparent, like, wow. There's a lot of people out there, they look pretty angry, they have items in their hand that could be used as weapons and, wow, it's a very different presence. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I agree you look at discipline and student management and how we deal with students of color when it comes to discipline um, you know our teachers our administrators or other students over identifying students of color for you know perceived transgressions or for actual transgressions that really would have been minimal had it been someone else I spent many years working in the juvenile justice system I saw every day when I went to visit facilities, who represented the student body and primarily students of color. That was a, a big push for us. Um, that is an accurate statement for sure. Um, I think a hallmark of, what, of the work that we need to do, unpacking the data, looking at why students are identified and what could be done differently you know, is there a pattern? Is there a specific person? Is there a specific location? Like what can we do to get into the data, unpack it, and figure out how to really address the issue?
0: Yeah. So similar to the curriculum, you know, why are we teaching this? What's the purpose? What do we want students to know and understand? What do we want them to be able to do with what they know and understand? Similarly, why are we uh, employing this strategy? Why are we yes. choosing this placement? Yes. Yes. Why are we choosing why this, did this consequence? Student,
1: yes, why did this student get suspended for four days for this infraction?
0: Right, and what do, what do students learn from that in general Is a good question I've Correct. had for years.
1: What do we want um, students to learn? <laughs> Right. We want to change behavior. Is this the best way to change behavior? Now listen, so we, there are some times when you don't have a choice, right? With specific infractions sure. understood. But there's right. a lot, there are lots of places where we can use our own professional judgment to make decisions about how we implement discipline.
0: Absolutely. So we could spend we could spend the whole afternoon talking about what we what we're doing wrong. Let's talk a little bit about what we should be doing instead.
1: So I think What we have to do is be honest um, and be truth tellers and educate ourselves. We're not going to make progress if we're all shrinking violets and not addressing the issues. Mm -hmm. So we're gonna have to be honest and we're gonna have to get uncomfortable because it's not gonna be fun or comfortable. It's going to be difficult and challenging and challenging conversations and there's gonna be an element of shame in there and we're just gonna Mm -hmm. have to sit in it and push through. I think the first thing that we have to acknowledge is that race is a social construct. And I don't know that people really understand that there is no race, right? And I actually pulled out the definitions of construct just so that anyone listening would know. A construct is an idea or theory containing various conceptual elements, typically one considered to be subjective and not based on empirical evidence. So that's a construct, not based on any evidence, right? And then social of a relating to human society. So it's something that we made up, perpetuated by society, because at the time it was economically appealing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When you talk about slavery, there was a lot of economy related to the enslavement of African-American people, of black people. There are political reasons and there are real economic reasons. And that's why we made up, not we, 300 years ago, a construct was made up to separate people so that one group had perceived power over another group. It's not real. There there is a race. It's called the human race. That's the race. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But we perpetuated this for how many years? I don't know that people even really understand that that is not accurate. Mm -hmm. So I think let's just, let's start telling the truth.
0: Yeah. No, the, the, what I'm thinking about is, is, is how sustained the effort has been to hold on to that idea that it's a biological construct
1: in some way. Yes. There's no biology. No biology. So, you know, listen, there's a lot that we can do. You know, we can read, we can educate ourselves. There are great books out there. I mentioned Emmanuel Acho's book, um, Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man. It's an easy read. It's it, it, He's got YouTube videos to go with it. Um, look at Kendi's work, Stamp, Stamp from the Beginning, How to Be an Anti-Racist. Robin D'Angelo has Right Privilege. I just finished I'm Still Here, Black Dignity in a White World by Austin Channing Brown, which was great. Um, there's tons of podcasts out there my favorites to opt in Chris I mentioned it to you and you thought it was yes know, they had great information what matters is a good pod is a good podcast but you know what people can do their own research take a class Mm -hmm. visit the National Museum of African American History it's not just for black people there's a lot to learn about our history and contributions made by people of color We have to be willing to do the work, you know, to look at our own bias. We all have bias. There's no way you can grow up in this country without bias. And then take some action. Like, what are you gonna do? What will you do differently? Ask yourself that question, make a commitment to do it. Tell yourself that doing nothing is not an option because standing on the sidelines watching, you are complicit in what's happening.
0: Yeah, if you're doing nothing, your and that's and that was really kind of what I was thinking about um, as, as you know as I was preparing for today. I was thinking about all the assumptions that people make and this assumption that I'm good and this assumption that well, I don't think this way. But oh my gosh, those those people over there, they're terrible. You know, we got to do something right. about those people over there. Right. And, and as long as those people stay over there, how are we going to do anything about them? Um Correct. Even I, I, and it's not that we don't need to do something about. You know people who are white supremacists and people who who you know have these outrageous positions absolutely we do but if we're not doing our own work we're we're just part of the problem
1: right and i'm going to take you back to one of my favorite quotes from martin from martin luther king in the end we'll remember not the words of our enemies but the silence of our friends Mm it's the good people who we think are nice who are saying and doing nothing
0: yeah too true too true right? another you know another you know and a form another way in which we i guess it's another way in which we we put we put the responsibility on somebody else is you know sometimes people start you know they they want to have the conversation so what they do is they they kind of they have a conversation with one person and they're trying mm-hmm. to use this person to represent the whole demographic. Right, right. 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 And, and so, you know, so, you know, maybe somebody has one black person on their staff. So that's the person that's like the go-to person. So what's your view on this? What should we do about this?
1: Yes. That, that's I've been a, that girl many times.
0: I, I bet you have. <laughs> so, so what can we do instead of doing that? I mean, obviously you know, I, people are coming from a, a place of good intentions when they, when they ask that question. But instead of doing that, which is not really going to get us where we need to go, what do we need to do
1: right. instead? And I'm gonna offer to you that I think sometimes people offer up those questions with an agenda. and, I, and So it's I not always most,
0: from a place of good intentions.
1: I don't think it is. And I think mm. most times people, people are just not aware because I think they're asking the question to then uh, debate it. And so if you want to know what my feelings are on, let's just say Black Lives Matter, it's not a debate, right? I'm entitled to feel how I feel. If I tell you that I am concerned when I take my child to a house that I'm not familiar with and I'm not sure she's going to be welcome, I don't need you to tell me that I'm crazy and, and you know I'm overreacting. That's not helpful. <laughs> i need you to acknowledge what i'm saying and then it's my experience and i'm entitled to my own experience you don't get to judge it you don't get to talk about it you don't get to disprove it it's my experience not yours mm-hmm. and i think sometimes it's not coming from a good place and and i would argue that people are not always uh, aware of the space that they're coming from
0: yeah well, again, when you're when you're breathing that oxygen, you can't really Correct. You can't really
1: Correct. Correct.
0: So you know, in talking with you a little bit earlier, um, you mentioned the difference between being an ally and a savior. Could you talk a little bit about that?
1: So an ally is a person who recognizes that they have privilege, right? Like you have comfort, you have privilege, and you're gonna work as a partner with people that don't have the same comfort and privilege towards obtaining justice. A savior is coming in with the belief that these people can't help themselves. Like I have to help them. They need Mm -hmm. me. What would they do without me coming here? What would they do if I didn't save them?
0: It implies superiority, doesn't it? Absolutely,
1: Mm. absolutely. Yeah. So I think people can be allies for sure. There's a, a there's multiple options to be an ally. Um, there's multiple resources on the resource on the uh, web if you want to research that. Um, you have to be intentional. You have to make a decision. I think like we talked about earlier, I'm going to do something differently and then do it. And be and then, committed to being uncomfortable.
0: That's got to be that's got to be at the core of it, right? You have to you have to be. Comfortable with being uncomfortable, comfortable yes. with uncertainty, yes. comfortable yes. with, with oh my gosh, not knowing. <laughs> yes, yes. You know, um, which to le- which you have to be to learn anything anyway, you know, in you order do. to be willing to learn, you have yes. to be willing to admit that you don't know. Yes. Um, so.
1: And the discomfort and- is where the learning is, like in that space where you're just acquiring a skill and you haven't quite gotten to, you know, attain it so you're still struggling to get there, like that's where you're learning. Right. It's not a fun place to be, it doesn't feel good, but that's where you're learning.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's so at the core of what schools are really supposed to be about. We're all supposed to have this, I don't know this, so let me go find out. You know, right. I, we wanna foster curiosity about things. That's where people curiosity. are most motivated to yes. learn, right? yeah. Um, and so rather than getting to know one story. I'm going to ask you, you're going to represent everybody. I'm going to ask you about your story and that's going to be everybody's story. You got to know, get to know everybody's story. You can't assume.
1: Correct. Because my story is not my colleague's story who also happens to be a black female. All that we have in common is that we're black and we're female. We're not the same person we don't have the same life experiences. So my story doesn't represent her story. Why would it?
0: Right. So let's shift a little bit from students to uh, teachers because we want to be, we want to, we need to take care of students, but in order to take care of one of our, uh, one of my favorite quotes from a colleague is you got to put the oxygen mask on yourself first, you know, like when you're on the airplane, right? So if you're going to take care of the kids, you have to be taking care of yourself. So yes teachers in minority constituencies, how do, we, how do we need to care for them differently from the way that we care for the majority of our staff?
1: So I think the number one thing that we need to do is listen because staff are gonna to come to you with stories that don't seem um, because of your experience, because of the oxygen that you're breathing. You may not believe that they are possible, but if they're coming to you, then they're possible. And the worst Mm -hmm. thing you can do is to put them off and say, oh, he's so nice, he didn't mean it. Or you must've misunderstood, he couldn't have said that, he couldn't have meant that. Like that's off-putting. No one's coming back to you to have another conversation because you've demonstrated it's not safe for me to bring my concerns to you. So listen, reflect, acknowledge that that there's pain. That's why they're coming Mm -hmm. to you. Don't make excuses, don't minimize. Check in with them and not like randomly, I'm I'm walking past your classroom. How are things doing? Make an appointment so they know that you're engaged and you're interested. Just check in to see how things are going.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: What do you yeah. need? What can I What can I help you with? How are you managing with colleagues? Right? You are you able to, to build relationships? Are you having any stumbling blocks to get there?
0: you really have to reach for, you have to reach beyond the surface. You have to reach beyond the niceness. You have to be willing to go under the hood, right? Yes, yes, you have to get
1: past nice. Absolutely, you have to dig in. And I'm gonna give you an example. I was participating in uh, a diversity workshop. I was the only person of color on this particular day. And we were talking about some things that were pretty intense. And one of the facilitators sent me a message. We were on Zoom, via Zoom, and just saying, just checking to see how you're doing. Now, I was really fine, but I could not tell you how much it meant to me that she even checked in to ask the question. Mm -hmm. Because that meant she saw me. You see me. Mm -hmm. You know this is not the same journey sitting in my chair. And that acknowledgement means a lot.
0: Yeah, that's so fundamental. That, that seems like job number one is see, see the person.
1: You see me. I'm not invisible. Like I have, have more than one time been at um, a store, you know, in a line and someone has called someone behind me and I have stopped the person. So whether it's a cashier or whomever, and I've said to them explicitly, am I invisible? Mm. Because I was before this person. And then they don't know what to say. Right. That that stops it. And and I'm going to say to you, I'm not sure they're even aware that they're doing it, but they're doing it right. So I don't need to make you feel better about it. I need to to let you know that I'm here and you don't see me. And that's not okay.
0: Raising awareness is not always comfortable.
1: It's not
0: comfortable. So. So I have to ask you as an administrator, um, you've been an administrator for a long time. How can administrators be partners in in creating community um, where people do feel like they can come forward and talk about their frustration, microaggressions they've experienced, uh, biased materials that are being used in the classroom, uh, any kind of systemic bias that's going on. How can administrators uh, be allies? and and creators of community in this way?
1: So administrators absolutely set the tone. Um, I believe, and since I don't have staff in the building with me, you can't pull them, but I believe that people that work with me know what my standards are and what I believe. So the administrator has to set the tone. You have to be an ally. You can't be a savior. You have to to be actively anti-racist and willing to say to people, hey, that's not okay. Hey, come to my office. I, I want to talk about this, right? You can't be the person that's watching it on the sidelines and not doing anything mm-hmm. because that's not your role. Our role is to set the example for the district. For every person that interacts, that interacts with us, we're setting an example. So we have to look at our own biases and we have to be very courageous Because just Mm -hmm. because you're an administrator doesn't mean that you have it all together and that you have this comfort with equity and with anti-racism, right? Like we struggle, we all struggle, but you have to push through that because we don't have the luxury of sitting on the sidelines. We have to be, as Brene Brown would say, in the arena, getting beat up, getting bloodied and still moving forward. So an administrator has got to set the tone. They have to create an environment where staff, staff of color in particular, have a comfort level to come to them and to be honest and transparent. And it's got Hmm. to be purposeful and planned. It's not happenstance.
0: Yeah, it's really like anything else. If you don't plan it, if you don't put it in your schedule, if you and I had said, hey, we're going to do this podcast and we hadn't scheduled it for you know, a particular day and time when we were going to record, we never would have gotten around to it. There's too many things to do in a day. And so it's so easy. It's so easy in, in, as an administrator, I've been an administrator too. It's so easy as an administrator to have that to-do list.
1: Yeah. And to have
0: this thing somehow just continue to fall to the bottom of the list. Absolutely. And if you don't put it at the top of the list and make it part and parcel of every day, it's just not going to happen.
1: Right. It's going to be Um, on the bottom of the list. There's no way around it. You know, like we have to build environments where staff feel safe to explore and to be curious and to ask questions. And we've got to be able to manage that and direct them to resources if they're struggling. So if you're struggling, I need to be able to direct you to a resource that can assist you outside of what I can do.
0: So I think I think I know the answer to this question. I think I know what you're going to say, but I want to hear you say it anyway. Um, who starts the process? Like who who really needs to go first? I mean, we've talked about teachers and we've talked about administrators, and we're talking about individuals. And who ultimately needs to start?
1: So I would say whoever is listening, you are the change, right? If not you, who? If not me, who? We are all the answer. Start today. Decide today what you want to do. You're going to go out and you're going to buy uncomfortable conversations with a black man. You're going to go out and buy how to be an anti-racist. You're going to get it from the library, right? Start today deciding what you're going to do and make a decision like doing nothing is not an option. It starts with all of us. Now, I'm not going to argue that having leadership, you know, from the superintendent and the board are always exceptional ways to move forward, but everyone can be the change. It doesn't take a special person. We can all do it.
0: Yeah, it, it really needs to hap- And
1: start today.
0: It needs to happen at all levels. I mean, I've worked right. in school districts where there's been some initiative started at the top and there hasn't been any buy-in throughout the organization and it's right dead on arrival. At the same time, I've been in districts where there's been some sort of grassroots movements, grassroots movement among teachers or among parents or among students, and they say, yeah, we got to make this happen. And there's right. no buy-in at the, at the higher levels, and therefore, that falls apart as well. So it really is a matter of, I, I think the leadership is imperative, but I think there, it is a matter where at some point, we all have to, we all have to take up this, this mantle yes. and say, okay, now where am I yes. going to go?
1: It Where am I in my to, journey? Yes, it's going to take every one of us working together to create the change that we want. None of us can sit on the sidelines, watching, eating popcorn, and saying, "Yeah, keep going."
0: So, what are some what are some concrete things that we can offer to people today uh, in terms of ex- specific? I mean, you've you've alluded to a few. Do some reading, and you you've listed some great authors. Um, but where, where would you advise people to start?
1: So I think there are a lot of different avenues depending on where you are in the structure, right? Um, you can talk to students, you can have an authentic conversation. How is this experience of school for you? What is your journey like on a daily basis? What are things that are working really well? What's not working? You can have, have the same conversations with staff. I would say if you're going to talk to, to, to students or staff of color, I would create a safe space where they feel like they can be honest uh, and do that separately. Um, talk to your community. What does your community think about your school system? Are they like me asking, why are we using this text? And your, and your response is, oh, we hadn't thought about it. Like, is that a good answer? I would say it's not. Um, I would say you want to be able to give your community and your parents substantive responses about the work that you're doing. Their children are part of your school community. They matter. Um, Look at your curriculum. Look at the text that you're using. Look at hiring practices. So we, I think I mentioned earlier, we're working with Dr. Goldie Muhammad and she gave us a challenge. Are you asking staff if they're racist? That kind of stopped me. It had honestly never occurred to me. I'm embarrassed to say. So we embedded a question in our interview protocols, like really the next interview that we started, you know, asking about anti-racism, social justice, equity. And what we learned was people don't have a language for that. They're not used to talking about it. They're not comfortable talking about it and they don't have a language for it. Most people will say, I treat everyone the same. And they believe that's a good answer but that's the wrong answer. Colorblind. Right, exactly. So look at your hiring practice. Who are you hiring? What questions are you asking them? Are you actively recruiting minority candidates? It's challenging, I don't disagree, especially in special ed, especially a learning disabilities teacher consultant. However, it can be done. Are you having difficult conversations in your school, in your building, in your district? Who are you having them with? How are they structured? Are they meaningful? What happens to that information after you have the conversation? Someone type up notes and save it and that's the end of it? Or does something happen to it?
0: Yeah. McCoy, I really, sorry, go ahead.
1: I was gonna say our district has been in this work for a long time. We have a cultural proficiency, equity and character education committee, and they have um, been working for many, many, many years uh, at the district level, at the building level. We have community partners because it's an important issue.
0: But so, that took
1: years of building and development.
0: Yeah, you really have to start with the, the small conversations first. Yeah. And yeah. it seems to me, I mean, you, you the first thing that came to your mind was the students. And that seems to me like a great place to start.
1: It's a great place to start.
0: Um, but that once you, I mean, over time, Yes, getting to a place where you have an organization within your organization that is really devoted to looking at these, these questions all the time. Yeah. Um, that's, re- that's where you've really made a commitment.
1: And it's a work so, in progress. It's, yeah. it's ever evolving.
0: Well, I think that's the, as human beings, to me, I, I have this conversation with people every day. People are like, well, how do I get to this point? And how do I get to this point? And I, we have this fantasy as human beings that we're like a train pulling into the station that one day we're gonna arrive and it's all gonna be good. And uh, that's just not the way it works.
1: Not the way it works, <laughs> no, no.
0: Um, so I, I, I just, you know, I can see our time is short and I want to thank you so much for spending time with me today. I feel as if I could talk to you. I feel as if we could do 10 of these episodes.
1: We absolutely could. and,
0: And just scratch the surface. So I, your, your breadth of knowledge on this is just so amazing. And, um, so many good insights for us to all think about, um, as we move forward into this new year. Um, so, thank you again for being with us. Thank um, you for
1: having me. I really appreciate it. It was a and, fun conversation.
0: Good, um, and and I would like to have you back sometime. So let, I'd be let's happy talk to come back.
1: That. Yeah, great. Just let me know when.
0: Great. So, everyone, conversations about student mental health is brought to you by Thrive Alliance Group, partners in school-based mental wellness. Before we wrap up. I wanna let you know about an upcoming event that can help schools facing rising rates of absenteeism and school refusal. Please join us for our upcoming webinar, Virtual Learning Dropouts, How to Get Students Back to Class. You'll learn how to uncover why students are disengaging, how to assemble a task force, and proven tactics to effectively address problems and get students back on track. To register, visit our website at learn.sagethrivetoday.com forward slash dropouts. Thanks for listening, everyone. Have a great rest of the day, and please do join us for more conversations about student mental health. Bye for now.